we are, I, I, I don't know about you, so many people I know right now uh, have COVID and are out, and so uh, we prayed for them in last service. We're going to pray for them again, and then we'll, we'll dive into the sermon. Father, we thank you for uh, allowing us to be here today. Uh, we thank you for uh, your word and worship that we can gather around. And, uh, but Father, we also think of those who are home today, who are not feeling well. Uh, we just pray for your hand upon them for your guidance on their lives and for healing. And I thank you that we live in a day and age where we can broadcast services and people can still be a part of that. And that's a great blessing. And I just pray for those who are watching from home today that, that they will be encouraged in their faith. I pray for us as we dive into your word together. Father, that you will speak to our hearts. Uh, help us to set aside the things that would distract us this morning and to really fully focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. So we have, uh, since back in September, which seems a long time ago, we have been going through uh, the Old Testament book of Judges. And so you're probably familiar with this now, but uh, it's uh, seven books in to the Bible. We have the first five books of Moses, and then uh, Moses dies, and we have a transition book in uh, Joshua, and uh, Israel be uh, begins to come into the promised land, take possession, and then when we come to Judges, uh, Joshua has passed away, and now we have these uh, leaders in Israel called judges. And, you know, when we hear the word judge, we think of this, right, a gavel. But back then, a judge was more like this. They're more about military deliverance from enemies. These are people that God would raise up to help Israel when they were in times of trouble. We have noticed a, uh, a, a cycle that repeats again and again in the book. And I told you the very first week, it's not just that there are these repeating cycles in the book of Judges, it's that um, the cycles are kind of descending. Each time they go a little lower and they don't get quite as high up again the next time around. And, and last week we came to chapters 19, 20, and 21. It's the end of the book as we think of it. And if you were here or you heard the sermon, you know it's just Israel hits rock bottom in so many ways. The story starts in chapter 19 about a Levite uh, and his um, concubine, which right away tells us there's trouble in the land. Why is it not a Levite and his wife? Um, we read a story about them going to uh, Gibeah and the men of the town wanting to rape the Levite, who responds by throwing his wife or his, you know, concubine out the door. Uh, she is raped. Uh, she is murdered. This leads to uh, civil war in chapters 20. In 21, approximately 100,000 people die in the Civil War. Things just go down, down, down. And then we read in chapter 21 about the tribe of Benjamin that now has just 600 men and that's it. No women and how's the tribe going to survive? And the answer is, well, we'll just go into a town and kill everybody except the young virgins. That sounds like a great plan, and we'll give them to the men, and they only net like 400 of the 600 they need, so then they go and kidnap another 200, and when you hear the story, you're just like, how low can these people go? And then that's it. That, like, that's, that's the end of the book. In fact, it ends this way in chapter 21, verse 25. Now, in those days, there was no king in Israel, right? So we talked about the fact that they had a king, the Lord God himself, but they will not honor him as king. They will not worship him 
they will not obey him. They only cry out to him when they have no other options. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone. And that everyone includes the judges themselves. The, the leaders of Israel were themselves part of the everyone. And so when you get to the end of the book, a good question is, what are we supposed to think of these people? Like, where is there a redeeming message in, in, in all of this? I would suggest to you that when you get to the end of, of Judges in chapter 21, that actually there's another chapter to the book. I would call it Judges chapter 22. But you won't find it in the Old Testament. You have to go to the New Testament and go to the book of Hebrews and go to the 11th chapter. And when you get there, what you find is just a little bit of commentary on what happens in Judges, really just the mentioning of some names, but some context. And it becomes the key to understanding the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book, just read it and moved on and thought, I don't understand. It's because you need the key. You go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 unfolds all this for us. Sometimes we talk about the 11th chapter of Hebrews is the, the hall of faith, right? Not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. A list of, of great men and women in the Bible who uh, had tremendous faith in God. And the chapter uh, both defines and illustrates faith for us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen is how it starts. And then it, it paints a picture for us of, of what faith looks like in people. So you get all these stories in chapter 11. Uh, there's a story about Noah, right? Uh, God told Noah to build an ark uh, because there's a flood coming. It's gonna, it's gonna rain. There hadn't been any rain. There hadn't been any flood. So Noah just has to take it on faith that God knows what he's talking about, but he does trust God. So he builds an ark. People think it's ridiculous. Uh, there's a story about Abraham who God says, I want you to pack up your stuff and hit the road and, and I want you to travel. And, and Abraham says, well, where am I going? And God says, well, I'll let you know when you get there. So he sells his home and I don't know, maybe it was like home selling today where it's really easy. People give you a lot more than you need. And then he hit the road and, uh, and then he lives in a foreign land as an alien for years. He does it by faith. When he's tested to give up his, his only child, uh, he passes the test. Why? By faith. We have stories about Moses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him when he was born. Uh, we're told that Moses chose uh, the ill treatment of being identified with God's people and giving up the privilege of uh, being part of, of royalty in Egypt. Um, by faith, uh, Israel kept um, the Passover. They crossed the Red Sea. This was by faith, by faith, they marched around Jericho, right? That looked ridiculous. That's silly. Blowing trumpets. By faith, Rahab the, the harlot, when the spies came, let them in, welcomed them in, hid them. We're told that she did that by faith because she had faith in the Lord God. And on and on and on it goes. And then we get to verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11, and there's kind of a surprise twist if you study the book of Judges very much. It says this, and what more shall I say? Right, we mentioned Noah and Moses and Abraham. For time would fill me if I told of like Gideon. Well, there's, there's a name we know, right? Gideon was one of the judges and, and Barak. There's a second one. And Samuel, there's a third. And Jephthah, and that's, that's another one. And of David and Samuel and, and the prophets. And when you read it, you might ask, how did these four guys, how did these messed up, flawed four guys make the hall of faith, right? They did some really messed up stuff. 
Well, we're going to look at that today. I want to just give us four kind of final observations. There's so many we can mention. Before I want to mention as we wrap up the book of Judges. And the first one is this. I've already made the point, but I want to, you know, kind of tease it out for us a little bit. And that is that the judges were messed up people just like everyone else. And this actually becomes really important as we understand the gospel. So let's think about these guys, the four guys that are listed as being great men of faith. But what does it say about them in, in Judges? So first, Gideon is mentioned. Gideon we find in the sixth chapter of Judges. We know that Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord. They had forgotten the Lord their God. And so God gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. You might recall that story, right? Israel would, would, would come down and they would plant crops and, and they would raise cattle. And, but they were so scared of the Midianites that they would go at night and sleep in caves in the hills. And then every now and then, the Midianites would, would come down and uh, they would ravage the land. They would take all the crops for themselves take all the animals and what they couldn't take, they would just burn or destroy and leave behind. And the Israelites are starving in the hills and then they cry out to God. That's what they do when they get to the end of themselves. They cry out to God. And in chapter 6, verse 11, we pick up the story. Now an angel of the Lord came and sat because God's going to answer their prayers. He's heard them. Uh, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon, there's our, our judge, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press. Why would he be doing that? Because he's trying to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. And we talked about how interesting this is because God calls him a mighty man of valor, but when we find him, he's hiding. And he's hiding, but God can see in him something he doesn't see in himself. And then God tells him he needs to tear down the altar that his father has to Baal. And so he, he has faith to do that. I mean, he has some faith, not a lot of faith. He does it at nighttime in the darkness. He's not about to do it in the middle of the day. Eventually, he gathers an army of about 32,000 men. You might remember this story against an enemy that we're told is without number. So a lot of soldiers, 32,000 soldiers. And so you already think in the story, well, these are overwhelming odds. And then God says to him, well, 32,000 is too many, right? So we're going to just whittle it down. They whittle it down to 10,000 soldiers. So now there's 10,000 against an innumerable army. And then God says, you know, it's still too many people. So I'm going to have you go down to the river and drink some water. And we're going to pick 300, just kind of seeming this people, 300. And the only weapons we know of that they have are trumpets and jars with torches in them, and we don't even really know what that's all about. We can speculate, but the point is this. God's going to give them victory, and when the victory comes, God doesn't want there to be any question about who accomplished the victory. This is a great gift that God is giving to the Israelites, and Gideon has the faith to obey God despite overwhelming odds against success, but Gideon wasn't perfect either, right? We know that about him. Uh, we know that he had a lot of doubt. He had some faith, but he had some doubt. When God called them to, to put this army together and the armies together and to attack, we, we had the fleece test. Remember that? He's, Gideon tells God, well, what if I put out some fleece at night and if the fleece is wet in the morning and the ground is dry, then I'll, I'll know to follow you. And so the next day he wakes up and it's exactly what he asked for. And you'd think like, now he's going to go off, but he's like, well, God, I'm still not sure. So what if we do the opposite the next night? And we'll have like the dry fleece and the wet ground and God's so gracious uh, with him. But this is a man who has a lot of doubts. He was merciless on people who didn't support him completely. Um, Israel offers to make him king after a victory and he refused, which is a great thing. That's what he should have done. But then he acts like a king. I don't want the title of a king. He says, I just want to act like one. So he requires a, a king's payment 
for leading the nation. Uh, with it, he creates an unsanctioned ephod and uh, an idol that it, we're told all of Israel whored after. Those are pretty strong terms for a lot of years. We know that he had many wives, despite uh, the fact that God is not okay with that. We don't know how many wives he had. We know he had 70 sons, so uh, he had a lot of wives, and that's not even enough. So he has a concubine, and she has a son named Embimelech, which means my father is king. So Gideon's got some faith, and then he's got some real issues as well. And then in chapter 11 of Hebrews, uh, Barak is mentioned next. So again, the story goes that the Israelites were being uh, pressed by the king of Canaan, and he had a commander of his army named Sisera. Remember, we talked a lot about him. And Sisera has a huge army, and he has 900 iron chariots. It's kind of like the, the technology of the day for going to war. In Judges chapter 4, verse 6, we find out that Deborah is actually the judge at the time, and Barak kind of is her commander. And it says, She sent and summoned Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So she's just reminding him, Go and gather up your men at Mount Tabor. We're taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, right, the enemy commander, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon uh, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. And so God instructs Deborah, to, who's the judge, to have Barak go uh, to war, to put together an army of only 10,000 men from just two tribes. So God's like, I don't, you know, I'm going to have 10 tribes sit out this one uh, because I, they only have 900 uh, chariots of iron um, and they look completely invincible. Again, why would God do this? He just wants it to be clear when the victory comes who accomplished the victory. So Barak and his man, uh, men had faith. I mean, they, they gathered together, they went and fought, um, and God accomplished the victory. And you know, an interesting part of the story we talked about was that Barak was told in advance um, that he would not get the glory for the victory, that it would go to a woman. Now, when you were a commander of an army, that's what it was all about. It was all about leading your army, having victory, and you know, having statues erected to you, and it's all over, and you get all the credit. And Barak was told, you're not going to get the credit for this. It's going to go to a woman. And yet he serves anyways. And I think part of what this is about is Barak is someone who wants to serve. It's more important to him than the glory. And so that's a great thing about him, but he wasn't perfect as well. He, he refused to follow God's orders the way God gave them unless Deborah went with him. So he trusted God, but he trusted God with conditions. And then next in Hebrews chapter 11 is, is Samson, who's met, met, mentioned. And you know, we know a lot about Samson. We know the Israelites were being oppressed by the Philistines. And so God chooses this guy named Samson, actually before he was even born, that he would be a judge uh, to Israel. In Judges 13, it says, Then the woman, that is his mother, gave birth to a son, and she named him Samson. And the child grew up. And the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Estel. God's Spirit was on Samson, we're told. And he, when we remember Samson, we remember somebody who was very powerful, who was, who was physically strong in a supernatural way. We, we read stories about him killing a lion with his bare hands who was charging toward him. At one point, he defeats a thousand Philistines himself. We know that eventually he's captured and he's tortured. He becomes a slave. And 
and his final act uh, is bringing down a building on 3,000 liters of the Philistines, and he serves Israel for, for 20 years as their judge. But Samson wasn't perfect, right? We, we think a lot about the imperfections of Samson. We think of his immaturity, right? The way he made, he was very impulsive in how he made decisions. He was a, a womanizer, and that's putting it lightly. Uh, he, he breaks this a divinely given calling, the Nazarite vow, which usually a person would make to God, he was, he was born with it. And, and what, he, what he should have seen as a great privilege, he saw as like, oh, I can't believe God put this on me. And so he just stomps all over this Nazarite vow uh, that God has made for him. Uh, at one point, he murders 30 men in order to pay for a bet that he lost. Uh, in retaliation for what his father-in-law does, he, he torches grain fields and in olive groves from people who didn't do anything to him. He has relations with a prostitute. He allows Delilah to betray him. I mean, he knew exactly what was going on here. Uh, so he's a man uh, who was used by God, a man who was a judge, a man who had some faith, and, and then in some ways he was just really messed up as well. And the fourth judge that's mentioned in Hebrews is Jephthah. Uh, here is a man uh, who uh, came in to being a judge when Israel was um, oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites for 18 years. They cry out to God. In Judges 11, we read this, Then the Spirit of the Lord was, was upon Jephthah. And he passed through, it's talking as he's going to war through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on from Mizpah to Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites, and God gives him a victory in, in battle. But this is a man who was born the son of a prostitute. And so he's, he's born into a difficult situation. It would have made him a social outcast in those days. Like, it wasn't his fault. This is what he's born into. He becomes an infamous warrior when the Israelites are just, you know, down and out. They call on him to lead them. Uh, he begins by trying to negotiate with the enemy before going straight to war. Eventually, when that doesn't work, they, they go to war. The Spirit of God, we're told, was, was upon him. He obtains a great victory. He puts down a civil war. But on the other hand, the thing we remember about Jephthah is this is a man who makes a, it makes a terrible, terrible and tragic vow to the Lord. It was a foolish vow. It was an unnecessary vow. It was a sinful vow. And because of this, his, his daughter, his only child, is put to death. So when you read about these four guys and you, you know about some of the good stuff they've done, but also some of the ways they were really messed up, the question obviously becomes, why are these men listed in Hebrews 11? They did some terrible things. I would suggest that they've probably done more terrible things than you or I have ever done. So what's the point? How did they make it? And of course, the point is that it's a matter of faith. This is the thing that Hebrews 11 wants us to understand about how to understand what happens, for instance, in the book of Judges. It's about faith. Now, in our culture today, it's not hard to talk with people about faith. I am able to talk with people about faith who have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I talk about faith and when they talk about faith, we're often talking about two different things. A lot of people, when they talk about faith today, they're, they're talking about what I just call faith and faith. They just have faith and faith. Like, you know, it's the whole, if your mind can conceive it and your heart can believe it, then you can achieve it, right? You ever heard that? It's just like, it's faith in myself. If I just have good vibes, if I, if, if I believe in the power of positive thinking or, or the 
the law of attraction, right? You hear a lot about that today. Like, I hope people will say to me, like, I believe in the law of attraction. I don't believe in God, but I believe that the universe gives back to you whatever you put out. Like, so if you just think good thoughts, then the universe will give good things back to you. And this is, this is faith in yourself. Biblical faith is radically different. It's about trusting something outside of yourself. Not trusting yourself, but something outside. It's trusting God. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, it begins this way. Now faith, here's what faith is. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. So he kind of breaks faith down into two categories, if you will. And he says, you know, it's about assurance and conviction. That word assurance means a, a confidence. Um, the word conviction means proof or evidence. And he, he kind of does it in two directions. He says of things, of things hoped for and things not seen. So when he talks about things hoped for, I think he's, what he's talking about are things in the future that haven't happened yet. They haven't happened, but we hope they will happen. We have faith that they will happen. And it takes faith because we haven't, we haven't been there yet. It, it hasn't happened yet. And so you have to trust God with the future and what it will be like. So we have to trust God that he's in control. As, as we move into the future. We, we trust that, for instance, Jesus is coming back, right? And, and that he's going to make all things right. We, we trust that he's going to save us by faith and that he will raise our bodies from the dead uh, to life everlasting, that he will deliver us to heaven. And we, we trust him with our future. And there are probably things in your life that maybe you worry about a little bit, a little anxious at times. And what's going to happen next? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen at work? What's going to happen with the economy and with COVID and all that? And how will my life turn out? Because you don't know the future. You haven't seen it yet. So it takes faith. That's where faith kicks in. We read what God says and we trust God. So he says for, for things in the future, but then he says of things not seen. And when he talks about things we haven't seen, he's talking about past events that have happened that we were not there to see ourselves, but we believe by faith these things have happened. And he gives us, he goes on and he talks about it this way, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you weren't there to see God create the world, were you? None of you are that old. Some of us are really old, but we're not that old. So how do you know? How do you know that God created the world? The universe created you. How do you know that if you weren't there to see it? Well, you believe it by faith because you trust God. By, by faith, he goes on. He's, he talks about Noah building the ark. You say, well, I believe there was a flood. I believe Noah built the ark, but you weren't there. So how do you know that that happened? You weren't there to see Moses lead Israel across the Red Sea. You weren't there to see Jesus die on the cross. You weren't there to see him rise from the dead and appear to many. So how do you believe it? Well, you believe it through faith, both for the things that are yet to come and the things that have already happened that you did not see yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no reasons to believe because, in fact, we have historical evidence for the gospel, for the stories of the Bible, that we believe that the Bible itself is historical accounts of what's happened in the past. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us who testifies to what is true, but we were not there to see it. We weren't there when things went down, and we have not seen yet what's coming in the future. So truth, true faith trusts God. It, it trusts both what he's done and what he will do for us. But, but this doesn't mean that we never have doubts. 
In fact, uh, I was reading this week a story in Mark chapter 9. Remember the story about the, the father who brings his child to Jesus, who has a demon, and he says, you know, if you could cast it out. And so they have this conversation, and he, you know, Jesus says, hey, I can, of course I can cast it out. All things are possible. And then the father says this, and these are interesting words. He says, immediately the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love how you have both of those residing in one person, don't you? You have both, you have some faith. He has enough faith to go to Jesus. He has enough faith to make the journey, enough faith to ask for his son to be healed. But he also says, I don't, I don't have perfect faith. And what I, what I take away from this is this. When a person with some faith struggles with doubt, they look to God, not away from God. And in our culture today, we see a lot of people who, as they have doubts about their faith, what they do is they go away from God. They go out and you know, deconstruct their faith and do stuff like that. Instead of going to God and to God's word, they, they move away from God. We could think of faith in kind of two broad categories. We could think of what we might call a natural faith and then a spiritual faith. So a, a natural faith, and kind of to illustrate that point would be, you know, like imagine you drink, you came in today and drank some bottle of water that was back there or you got some coffee, all right? So there's a certain amount of faith based on you know, kind of knowledge and experience. Like I doubt any of you came in today and, uh, you know, opened up the water and tested it for uh, any contaminants or, you know, uh, maybe sent in a sample of the coffee um, to see if there's any poison or anything. That you just, you drank it, right? And it requires a certain amount of faith just based on, you know, you've drank a lot of water and you haven't died yet or you've had some coffee and you're not dead yet. So are you going to a restaurant and you eat food, right? There, there's a certain amount of faith. You get on a plane, um, you know, you put your faith in a surgeon. You, you don't go out to lunch with them. You don't hang out with them. You don't know them that well. But but you, you have some faith, right? You read some reviews online and you're like, well, they haven't killed anyone yet. There's a, there's a certain kind of faith that we practice, but then there's spiritual faith. And spiritual faith is different because it's, it's not natural. It's spiritual. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it tells us this, for by grace you have been saved, right? You, we read this verse all the time. It's by grace you have been saved uh, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And I think sometimes we only understand half of what the writer's saying here when we go and we say, well, grace is a gift from God. I mean, by its very definition, it's, it's a gift of God. But I think part of what he's saying here is it's not just the grace, it's the faith. That it's not just the grace that's a gift of God, it's the faith that is a gift of God. It's both a gift of God. That faith itself is a spiritual thing. It's not a natural thing. It comes from God. And so that's why I think when the father cries out, increase my faith, help my unbelief, he's going to the right place when he looks for help. He's going to the only one who can help him when it comes to strengthening his faith. So going, going back to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 2, it goes on and says this, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. So we might say this, that true faith has an object. This is really important. True faith has an object, and that object is God. We would say more specifically, that object is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we would think of it this way, that all the Old Testament saints that we read about who had faith in God, they were trusting in a Messiah, in someone who was going to come and take care of their sins who's going to take care of that, who's going to make it possible for them to be right with God. Because even in the Old Testament, they understand that all the sacrifices they made could not make them right with God. 
They needed a Messiah, a deliverer, a Savior. And so they didn't know what we know. They didn't know what the name of the Savior was going to be, per se. They didn't understand the incarnation the way that we understand it today. They didn't you know, know what his life would look like and the, you know, the things that he would teach. And they didn't understand how he would be crucified and resurrected. But they looked forward to the fact that God was going to provide a Messiah for them. They looked ahead. They didn't know his name. We look back on the same story, on the same person. And we have a lot more information. So why we look back to the Savior, they look forward to the Savior. Both required faith. In other words, everyone has been saved in the same way. Some of us have a little more information about it than others. But all have been saved by faith in what God would do for us through Christ. Going on in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, And without faith... It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So he's telling us something very important here. He's saying that faith is relational. Faith is how we relate to God. That it's the only way we relate to God. If you have faith in God, you have relationship. If you don't, then you simply don't. So the Christian life is not simply knowing things about God although that is an important part of being a Christian, but it's a personal and saving relationship with him. That's what gives us, that's the basis of our relationship with God. And without faith, there is no relationship. And it tells us that faith that comes from God sparks a desire in us to seek God. So it leads us to want to pray and talk to God. It's a natural thing that begins to happen when you have faith because now we have a relationship. It makes us want to do things like read the Bible, right? So we're talking a lot about how to read the Bible and when to read the Bible and different Bibles to read. But, you know, it wouldn't mean anything if you didn't have some kind of God-given desire within you already to read the Bible. It causes us to want to think about God, to ponder God, to meditate on the things of God. It, it causes us uh, to want to be holy. We are messed up people, but we want to be holy because we want to be like our Savior, like our Father. It makes us want to invest, invest in our relationship with Him. You know, it made me think my wife and I were, uh, we, I don't know how we got in this conversation last night, and we're talking about when we first met in college and, and how all that went down. And I was thinking to myself, you know, when I first met Christy and when I fell in love with her, I didn't, nobody ever had to say, you know, you should go spend time with her or you should take her out on a date or you should be with her because I wanted to. I, I wanted to be with her. And I think that when we have a, a faith relationship with God, it's the same way. We want to be with God. We want to spend time with him. We want to love him. And here's a really important thing to understand when we talk about faith. And it really kind of is bringing it all together now as we look at Judges and, and we think about Hebrews chapter 11. And the principle is this, that what makes faith powerful, what makes faith the thing that can save us, isn't the amount of faith you have. Right? Jesus said you could just have the, the amount of faith like a mustard seed to move a mountain. Right? It's not the amount that you have, it's the object of your faith. This is the important thing, the object of your faith. So let me just kind of illustrate this for you if I can. So imagine I was just talking to some friends after the last service who I uh, just got back from Hawaii and my wife and I were like, oh, that would be so much fun to go to Hawaii, wouldn't it? So Hawaii is about 2,500 miles from uh, PDX. And so imagine just for uh, illustration uh, point that uh, I 
had a friend who has a, a Cessna 172 Skyhawk. So actually I got in trouble because somebody in the last service has one and they felt like I dissed him. Okay, I'm not dissing anybody, but let's just imagine that a, a buddy and he says, hey, I could fly you to Hawaii. No problem, it's 2,500 miles. But the Skyhawk, is, which is I think the most popular single uh, prop plane in the world, has a maximum distance of roughly 800 miles, right? So, um, and my buddy said, yeah, you know, you don't speak ill of my Cessna, but I don't know what to say. It's only going to get you 800 of the 2,500 miles, right? So it wouldn't matter how much faith I had. It wouldn't matter if I got that and I'm like, if, you know, if my mind can conceive it in my heart, it doesn't matter. I'm going to die. All right, I'm going to go down in the ocean and that's going to be, that's going to be the end of it. Why? Because my faith is in the wrong object. Wrong object. Now let's imagine that we actually bought tickets and we were going to get on this plane, on the 737 MAX, which uh, can get to Hawaii actually several times on a single tank. But let's imagine I'm a little nervous, like I'm not really sure that the 737 MAX can get me there. And so I'm kind of, you know, I don't want to really get on, but finally I, I get on the plane and, you know, I buckle myself in and I'm pretty nervous. I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to get me there, but it gets me there, all right? So my faith may be small. My faith may be weak, but it was in the right object. It was in the object that could get me there. See, the right object of our faith is Jesus Christ himself. There's a lot of benefits to having a lot of faith, right? But it's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's who is the object of your faith. That's what gets you there. So again, when we come to, to people in the Old Testament, we look at some of these judges, we say, some of them had some real doubts. Yes, they did. But it was the object of their, of their faith. Even in the New Testament, we see people like Thomas and Peter and others who doubt. It wasn't the amount of their faith. It was the object of their faith. Which brings us to the third thing I want to talk about for a minute. And that is this. That really, when it gets right down to it, the bad news of judges is actually good news. It's actually really good news. We get to the end of the story. Everything's gone south. Everything looks bad. We come to Hebrews 11 and go, wait a minute. <laughs> right? How did these guys make the list? And it reminds us of something. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved by being good enough. Right? Salvation is not the result of like a balance sheet where we record all the dumb things, the bad things we do on this side and all the good things. And as long as there's more good things than bad things, because honestly, there are some things that those judges did, they could have never done enough good things to undo like killing their daughter or killing innocent people. It's just never gonna work out in their favor. It's not like, well, if I do more good stuff than bad stuff, or if, as long as I'm in the top 50% or, you know, if I make the, I don't know how God, you know, grades the curve, but as long as I'm in there, the point is this, we're saved by faith. We're saved by the grace of God that comes by faith, and it's the only way that we're saved. And this is why the gospel is good news, right? It's good news for us because we're all sitting here going, I'm not a perfect person, I'm a messed up person. And that's why the gospel is good news. These four judges in Hebrews 11 did some messed up stuff. Killing a daughter, creating an idol that will infect the nation spiritually for years and years to come, murdering 30 men to cover a bet that you made, and yet they're commended for their faith, right? This is the good news of the gospel. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, again, let me read this again. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not, you're not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Notice, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And I know that we, we could all sit here and say, well, I know that I'm saved by faith and the grace of God, 
But sometimes I think we actually kind of do this thing where we're like, I'm saved by grace, but, you know, I probably, I didn't need as much grace as he needs or she needs. Like, they needed more. So, God, I'm saved by grace, but not that much grace, right? Just a little grace. But I've seen you, and I know what you've done. Or and I read about these judges, and it took a lot more grace for God to save them than me. No, we're all saved by grace, and only by grace. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. None of us can boast, but, but keep reading and notice what it says. We are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good, wait, for what? We were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, good works are the result of faith, not the other way around. We were created for good works. We we're created to do the stuff that we do, but it's a result of what God has already done in us. So we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, and it, it begins to make sense to us. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if I told of Gideon. He was kind of a loser. Yes, but he had faith. He was saved by grace. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and, and David, right? David did some messed up stuff too. And Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong uh, out of weakness, uh, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The Old Testament saints of, of Hebrews 11 trusted God so much that they were willing to base their lives, their decisions on the very words of God to them. They did bold stuff. They did illogical stuff that people were like, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? They did impossible stuff that they could never do on their own. They conquered kingdoms. They, they enforced judgment, uh, justice. That was the, the, the whole role of a judge. They stopped the mouths of lions and they did this as a result of faith. And, and judges just proves the point that God can use imperfect people. And that's good news for us, right? Because we're all imperfect people. If God couldn't use imperfect people, God couldn't use anyone because we're all messed up. We're all kind of in that same boat. It describes every one of us. We're all imperfect. But when we have faith in Christ, even a, even a little faith, God can use us too, even in our messed upness. And that's the good news and at the end of a terrible, terrible bad news story. And with that, I want to just mention one more thing just quickly as we wrap this up. And that is, don't forget to remember. So there is a, there is a phrase that appears many times in the book of Judges. And it has, it has caught my attention in my imagination every time I read it. In Judges chapter 8 verse 34, for instance, notice it says, And the people of Israel did not... Remember the Lord, the Lord their God, the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. This is Israel. They had a king. They had a king, but they kept forgetting the king, right? They had somebody who would, who delivered them from oppression, and then they would forget about him. They forgot about the one who gave them their land, the promised land, and protected them and, and, and blessed them, and they kept forgetting the Lord, as they lived daily, as they, as they made decisions, and we just see this progression again and again and again, and God blesses them, and then, you know, they forget him. And I, I would imagine it, it probably wasn't like one day they're loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then one day they wake up and they just forgot all about him. Like, I don't think that's the way that it probably went down. 
Yeah, they, they, they just, they, they're being impressed and God delivers them and they're celebrating and oh God, the next day they wake up and like, remember yesterday we were oppressed and today we're free, praise God. And they're eating lunch, like remember how great lunch is and you know, we got jobs and property. And then I think just one day maybe they woke up and they just didn't praise God that morning. They just kind of got up and instead of thinking, praise God for another day, they just took it for granted. And slowly, slowly, they forgot about the Lord, their God. I was thinking about this very thing, so I, uh, I found an article in the, uh, in the, on the internet this week, and here was the headline. The headline read, San Francisco skyscrapers tilting 13 inches per year, and it kind of caught my attention, because I'm like, 13 inches, that's not very much, right? That's, that's not very big. So this is a, a building, a high-rise apartment uh, building in downtown San Francisco, and um, it says this, engineers are working to stabilize a luxury San Francisco apartment building. I guess like Joe Montana lives in there. And, and these apartments go from anywhere from a couple million a piece to 10 million a piece. So we're talking about pretty nice apartments. A luxury San Francisco apartment building that is tilting about three inches per year. By 2016, the tower had already sunk 16 inches into the ground with a six-inch lean at the top of the building. Right? So I'm just trying to imagine living in that thing, right? In spite of efforts to solve the problem, the building is now tilting 26 inches north and west. At the current rate, the 58-story, 419-unit Millennium Tower is on track to reach a 40-inch tilt in a few years, which will render the elevators and plumbing unusable. So when I read the article, um, besides feeling a little vertigo, uh, I just remember like thinking, you know, in an ordinary context, three inches a year doesn't sound like much, right? Just an inch here and, and, and an inch there, but it all kind of adds up over time, doesn't it? And I think that's kind of how we tend to forget God. I think most of us, we don't just wake up one day and we're like, forget God. We just, we get up one day and we, you know, we kind of get up and start getting ready for the day and we don't thank God for the day. We don't recognize God for the day. We're not praising God in the morning for giving us another day. It's like we just deserved it. There it is. I just get another one. Or maybe, you know, we have lunch that day and instead of thanking God for the lunch, we just kind of eat it and never think about the one who blessed us and gave it to us. Or maybe it's like just being around people in your house, loved ones, and, and never really thanking God for them. Or, or going to your job, or going to school, or, or, or pursuing a hobby, or going for a run. We, after a while, we don't really thank God for our health anymore. We just take it for granted. Or the resources that we have, or vacation we go on, or on and on and on. It's just three inches at a time, right? I doubt any of us are just going to forsake God all of a sudden in one moment. It's just three inches here, and it's three inches there. Folks, here's the point. We have a king. We have a sovereign king who rules over the universe. He is our creator. He is our protector. He is our savior. He is our provider. I believe that part of the response of this book is this. Let us live as people who have a king. Let us live as people who trust the king, who trust the savior, who have faith in him. Let us not be like the people of Israel who forgot the Lord their God and did what was ever was right in their own eyes. We have a king. We trust him. We honor him. And that is my encouragement to you as we close out this book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. And Scott's going to come up and lead us in a closing hymn. And we'll send you on your way. Father God, I thank you uh, so much for this book. Um, months and months of uh, passages that at times have felt dark. 
have felt, you know, discouraging. Um, and yet in the midst of it all, there is a light. And that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has come for us. The one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The one who came for us, who sought us, who taught us truth, who died on a cross for us, who paid the penalty for our sins so that we might be redeemed. The one who was buried, the one who rose from the dead. The one who has ascended to heaven and inter intercedes for us at your right hand. The one who is coming again, the one who will resurrect our bodies the one who will deliver us to heaven. That is the one we have our faith in. Jesus is the object of our faith and our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this morning we declare that. We declare that Jesus is our King. We declare that our faith is in him. And Father, we ask that you would take us and even our messed upness, make us your own, propel us forward into your kingdom. May we live as those who have a king. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.